what causes radicalization? Is there a Muslim identity crisis in the West? What are the myth and common misconceptions behind radicalization? Are there any solution to reduce the risk of radicalization? Welcome to the Zada Show. I am Naska Zada. On this episode, I will interview a Taliban fighter who became an undercover spy for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Today, we have three topics, radicalization now and then, new tools to fight extremists and terrorism, a reality check on Muslims in North America. Our guest today is an expert in radicalization, de-radicalization, and counterterrorism. When he was young, he trained with members of Taliban but eventually abandoned their ideology and became an undercover counterterrorism operative with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Now he is recognized for his work in a permanent exhibit called Preventing Terror at the new International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. He's also co-author of the book Undercover Jihadi, inside the Toronto 18. Mubin Sheikh, welcome to the Zada Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Let's start with your story, an amazing story, your personal story about radicalizations. Um, you were radicalized when you were 19. Tell us about that story. Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned in your intro uh, identity crises because I'm born and raised here in Toronto, Canada. My parents are from Indian background, came here in the early 70s. Uh, keep in mind that the main Indo-Pakistani migrations were happening around the 60s, especially when the independence movements were happening. A lot of uh, Pakistanis mostly going to the UK, uh, of course, also coming to North America. And my parents were in that uh, in that, I guess, later group that went in the early 70s. So I grew up here uh, going to basically two things, two lives. One was the Western life, and that was going to public school, boys and girls mixing, very caring environment, as opposed to in the evening time when I would go to madrasa or Quran madrasa, uh, which was a very hard environment, no mixing, uh, not caring and nurturing. In fact, it was very abusive and violent. Uh, and so, you know, this laid the foundation for an identity crisis that would hit me later on in my life at 18. Uh, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was not bullied. I was not picked on. We were the cool kids of the school. When my parents had gone out of town, I had a house party in the house. And uh, my father's brother actually walked in on the house party. Uh, now, he was this very hard, you know, mean Muslim. And, uh, of course, you know, his teenage nephew uh, bringing these kuffar into the house. Kuffar is anyone who is not Muslim to them. Uh, all my friends. He became very angry. Uh, I became very guilty. I felt uh, a lot of shame. 
And because of this, I decided, okay, I need to become super religious. And that will, you know, fix everything and all my problems will go away. Um, and so in 1995, I would go to India and Pakistan. And while I was in Pakistan, I would have this encounter with the Taliban. And we sat and we talked and I really came to believe in their cause because, you know, I was this Muslim kid looking for this new Muslim identity. And for this is a problem for a lot of Muslim kids in the West, in Europe, who come from different backgrounds, who have this other world and other history that they're told of, of Islam. Uh, and, and it is presented in such a way that it does not mix with the Western society in which they're living. And so a lot of these young people end up making extreme choices. So they go from one extreme all the way to the other extreme and they do it overnight. And the problem is, is a lot of these people uh, or quite a significant number, we'll say, who, who go through these extreme changes um, come from criminal backgrounds, drug abuse, maybe child abuse. And so when they start to turn towards religion, it's not usually something that's productive, but it's something destructive. And so that's where I found myself at 19. Yes, and when you were radicalized. So do you think that's the causes of radicalization in general then? No, uh, it is a multi-factor uh, problem, right? Um, so there's a very great quote uh, from Peter Neumann. He's the former director of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. And his quote is that ideology without grievances doesn't resonate, doesn't make sense. And grievances without ideology are not acted upon, right? So ideology is action-enabling ideas. Hmm. So ideology and grievances and the, the interplay between these two, okay, that's number one. Number two, and this is my quote, that sometimes religious ideology is indeed a driver of violent extremism, but other times just a passenger with other psychosocial factors at the wheel. And basically, uh, Peter Neumann again has put out a star model of radicalization, which basically shows that the context differs for every individual depending on where they're from. Uh, what a kid in Toronto, Canada is going through uh, may not be the same as, you know, Somebody a kid in Pakistan in or India. Yeah. Right. Or I was going to use it a European example, like oh, in yeah, the West. Too. Yeah, whether you're in Canada versus America or in Britain, you know, there are some local contexts that differ. But the, the sentiment is exactly the same. They become very uh, separationist from society. Uh, we, we tell a lot of these people that they don't belong in our society. And so they take that identity. They say that, okay, it's just like when people say that, oh, Muslims are terrorists, Islam is terrorism. These marginalized, vulnerable people, when they hear that, they're going to think, okay, I'm a terrorist. Uh, that's, that, that's the only way you're going to see me. I'm going to accept that role and I'm going to become that terrorist. So, mm -hmm. so we, we have to look at it across the board for what is true for somebody in one place mm -hmm. may not be true for somebody else in another place. Okay. We have to go back to your story because after you... How a person be de-radicalized? What happened for you? What happened? 
So after, uh, so in 1995, when I became a supporter of the Taliban, then we became a supporter of Osama bin Laden in 1998. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was 9-11, the attacks of 9-11, which made me rethink my understanding. Now, remember, I'm Indian background. We did not learn Arabic when we, we learn how to read Quran. Mm -hmm. So you're Arab, so this will be very weird for you. No, I, I'm actually Kurdish, so I didn't, I learned it in school. Okay, my, just, my apologies. It's okay. Uh, but, but okay, but your Arab viewers will get this. Yes. We are Indians, but we are learning how to recite the Quran without understanding what the Quran is saying. Yeah, I understand <laughs> Arabic because I studied it, but my parents, they're the same. They know yeah. Quran completely, but they don't know what the meaning of it right. unless it's, you know, they memorized it. Right, right. And, and that's exactly where I was, right? I would read the Arabic and then read the English and then associate the two. So if I recited a verse from the Quran and I gave you the English interpretation after it, you would think that I knew the Arabic. And when I was recruiting other people to this global jihadi cause, you know, that each of us, we must be a mujahid and through jihad is the only way that Islam will, you know, come back to power again, right? Make Islam great again. Um, so this is how we thought. And after 9-11 happened, I realized that I don't know Arabic. I don't know anything about uh, Islamic studies. So I decided that I would actually go overseas and study Arabic and Islamic studies. And I did that. I went to Syria in 2002, of course, long before the war. Mm. Um, and I registered with the Canadian embassy while I was there. This would help me later on when I joined the intelligence service because, of course, they checked, you know, okay, where was this guy in Syria? But when I left, the bad guys who I was around, they did not know that I had this change in my heart. So when I went overseas, they thought, oh, this guy is going to escalate because mm -hmm. we were always thinking about going to fight in jihad somewhere. And in 1996, when the Chechen war happened, uh, I wanted to go to Chechnya to fight as a foreign fighter, uh, to fight the Russians. Uh, so 9-11 happened. I moved to Syria. I spent two years there. I was introduced to uh, the Sufis. Uh, Sufism is like, uh, to explain to your viewers, uh, Sufism are like, Sufis are like the Jedis of the Muslim world. And the Wahhabis, they are like the Sith. Okay. okay, Autobots and Decepticons. That's a good way to explain. <laughs> so they, they, they showed me a new way to look at the world, uh, talking about love and mercy and being good to everybody. So uh, I this is where I de-radicalized. It took about two years. Uh, it was quite a natural process. You have to want to change. Uh, and it's very difficult when we talk about uh, what I want to call de-radicalization in the laboratory because a natural organic process is one thing but an artificially replicated process is something else mm -hmm. and and that's the bigger dilemma and, and I'm sure we'll get into you know what do you do with these radicalized prisoners and you mm -hmm. know if you're going to give them a you offer them a de-radicalization program they might accept it thinking they're going to get a lesser sentence right it's almost impossible to know that they're telling the truth. Uh, a lot of them have been taught to lie and deceive uh, and trick uh, the authorities into thinking that they're de-radicalized, but they're not. Mm 
<laughs> so I went through a natural process, uh, and then I came back in 2004. I was recruited by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Uh, I worked with them for a few years doing undercover operations. Uh, in 2006, there was a big court case. Uh, 18 guys got arrested. I was the witness in that case. I spent four years in court uh, testifying against these people. And then in 2012, ISIS happened. And so I got onto social media, you know, talking about using technology. I got onto social media. I watched the rise of ISIS in real time. I, I argued with them. I trolled them. I tracked them. Uh, and I debated with, uh, with them. And so I did that until maybe just two years ago, and then I just got sick of it. Uh, but now I, now I train uh, the military, the special forces, uh, and the, I guess, the larger intelligence and police community. Yes, now you're part of the solution, which is great. Real quick, we have so many questions, and your story is so amazing. I don't know why it's not a movie yet to talk about all working of that. <laughs> or is that. Working on it? Working on it. Okay, fantastic. I'm like, this is, I would watch this as a movie. Um, let's talk about, real quick, common misconceptions about uh, the driving factors behind radicalizations. Just give us some points so we can go to our next section. As long as you acknowledge that the process of radicalization is complex and has many factors. So common misconceptions are when people say poverty causes terrorism, or if they say poverty does not cause terrorism. You can't be so equivocal. Uh, sometimes it does and sometimes it does not. Uh, it's not true across the board. So uh, that's one thing. Or another one might be, you know, religion uh, is a cause of, of extremism and terrorism. You know, I would say uh, interpretations of religion are a problem and are a cause of extremism and terrorism. So those are just two quick points. Okay. So this is this is by itself is a show, you know, that talk about religion and how to interpret that. But we have to go to our next question, which is, um, it's, it's very important to talk about radicalizations, but has it changed now and then when you were radicalized? What do you think? It has changed significantly, largely because of the rise of social media. Oh, uh, in 1995, there was no Facebook and Twitter and anything else. In 1995 and 96, when I was thinking about going to Chechnya, it was because I had viewed CDs, jihadi CDs, uh, on which a lot of you know the attacks were recorded. Um, beheading videos were already available even then, but it was harder to share that information, uh, you know, quickly and widely. Uh, you had to do it by hand, or it was very archaic. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, really mid 2000s you started to get these password protected chat forums, uh, social media platforms in which now you could share those videos, uh, expand your networks very quickly without having to get in your car or get on a bus and go meet somebody. Uh, and so I was undercover in those years and I saw it start from the very beginning. So I would say that it's, it's quite different now. The process was longer of, of radicalization was longer in those days. It has it has shortened considerably today. Okay, so since you're talking about that, it's a lot easier. Let's talk about numbers and percentages of that. Do you think so? What do we know? How many people radicalized in the West in general, in North America, for example? 
Uh, we, uh, we, I think the well, the there the current there's a current statistic about uh, U.S. citizens arrested on, on ISIS-related investigations, uh, and I believe the number was around ninety something, ninety-six. Uh, you might have to fact check me on that, but the uh, George Washington University's program on extremism, uh, they 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 keep these numbers and they they do. Uh, they are on Twitter as well, uh, G-W-U-P-O-E. Uh, and so you'll find exact numbers on that. And they break it down to males versus females, converts. Um, so I don't know if we've if kept statistics like that from, you know, the 90s. Uh, jihadist terrorism really wasn't a, a thing uh, really until 1998 uh, when, when uh, Osama bin Laden came out. But... Uh, in Canada as well, the number is uh, quite low. I think we're dealing with uh, 40-something people that have been charged uh, in, uh, with under terrorism laws. But then again, these terrorism laws only came out in 2002 in Canada. So uh, I don't know how far we can go back, and it's it would be difficult to find out that statistic. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, Mubin Shaq, I want to let the audience and the viewers, because this interview will be aired as a podcast too. So I want them to participate as well because you're giving some great information that, so what What do you guys think that top two reasons people radicalized, especially in North America? Uh, share your thoughts and comment below. We would love to hear from you. I'm sure Mubin Sheikh would love to hear from you too. So we can know your thoughts and your opinions. Um, share with us. We go into our next question uh, that you know, so many counterterrorism organizations and experts after September 11, uh, yet we're still dealing with terrorism. We have not found um, a solution. So do we have some practical tools to fight terrorism right now? Yeah, I mean, understand that terrorism is a tactic that has been used from the beginning of time. Uh, we've seen it in different religions, uh, ancient religions. Uh, everyone has their extremists and terrorists, uh, especially if you want to go into biblical times. Uh, remember the Jewish, uh, really, they, they were strict Jews, uh, but they were called zealots, some of them. Some of them were zealots, uh, but others, like the Essene community, uh, the Dead Sea Scroll community, they were pious people. They were not extremists, uh, but some of them were considered extremists. Uh, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself was accused of hanging around some some rebels, right? So this kind of stuff has been around even in the first century, whether it's the Jewish Sikari, right, who were dagger people who would stab up anybody they thought were sellouts to the government. Mm -hmm. So these tactics have been used throughout time uh, terrorism is a fact of life and it's a fact of nature. And I don't, we, we don't like to hear that because we like to think we can stop these things all the time, wherever they happen. Yeah, cut but it off, finish. We want to be done. So, work like so what's the solution then? <laughs> so we have to fight it is what we got to do, right? How? We have to fight it and we, mm -hmm. we do it in two ways. Okay. One is at the society level and the other is at the, we'll call it the kinetic and tactical level. Uh, the societal level, we need to un have an understanding of what terrorism is, of what radicalization is, what causes it. Uh, then we can start to say, well, then here are some of the solutions to it. 
So if we say, for example, as I have said, that ideology and grievances is one formula to look at, then the response would be twofold. One is that there has to be counter ideology. So we need to have Muslim scholars, Muslim, you know, people, excuse me, speaking against uh, these interpretations of the Wahhabis, basically, uh, to show why it's wrong, because they quote Quran and then we quote Quran. And they quote Sunnah and we quote Sunnah. And the thing is, these people, they will pick and choose whatever they need to to prove their point. And only one can be right at the end of the day. The two cannot be right. Two contradictory positions cannot be true at the same time. Uh, so it, there has to be this fight and this ideological battle uh, between Muslims and these criminals who call themselves Muslims. That's at the ideological level. I would break that down a bit more and I would say I'm a big believer in interfaith activities, hmm. meaning not we try to convert each other because we all we all have our religion. Mm -hmm. But to understand we, oh, you don't that have we have to have religion to be really, you know, holding, holding on to an idea so much that it feels so strong. Yeah, I, I would even say that when I talk about interfaith, I, I should include even people who, who don't have any faith mm -hmm. as long as we agree on good things, right? That these are good things and these are bad things. These are good values, these are not good values. And and in this dialogue process, we, we push these ideas and we spread those ideas in our own faith communities or whatever communities. This develops what is called resiliency. Because if we say that, you know, a resiliency is having uh, uh, conviction and success in the face of adversity, right? I mean, you are in a depleted state and yet you still go on, right? Mm -hmm. And so when an attack happens, let's say, if tomorrow an attack happened, how would we respond? Would we, you know, default back to those ideas which divide communities, which break people, which pit people against people? Well, then we're not being resilient. We're just going back to square one. Right. We're creating very weak bridges and the enemy knows this. This is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. I have found that some people I understand they become upset. They're angry. Uh, you know, they have these people who are committing these attacks in the name of Islam. And then people, what they do is they go and they start attacking Islam or start attacking the Muslim community and not realizing that our adversary like ISIS has actually written about this. They have said, they put it in writing. In the document they wrote this in is called the Black Flags from Rome. Hmm. They said that we will commit these attacks so that the Muslims who are living as minorities in non-Muslim majority countries will be targeted by the non-Muslim majority. And those that are vulnerable and marginalized in those communities, they will come running to us with open arms. Hmm. So... They, the adversary, knows this as a strategy. So that's another point I would just put on the social side. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third thing, let, let's say, is uh, the institutional support. So in prisons, uh, through police agencies, intelligence, military, for them to be aware of how to deal with radicalized prisoners, uh, how to deal with, how to vet imams. What kind of imams are you sending into the prison to talk to these people? Right. This is there's an institutional uh, buildup that needs to occur. Okay. So those are my three quick points on society. 
Yeah. And then with kinetic and military, obviously we need to fight them. We need to fight them and we need to end them. Yes. Um, it's very interesting you talk about imams and vetting them. But if you are in, like I lived in Middle East um, half of my life, there's no vetting, no, 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 there's nothing like that. Like who's going to be imam because, and people don't realize that how important it is because every Friday they have, the, you know, they speak to the public about important issues and they really have so much power in those communities. So, uh, you know, that's, that's very um, yeah. interesting. I, we were saying before the show started that that whole that the world, Muslim world is trapped between dictators and jihadists, right? And everyone else is caught in the middle. And I think one of the biggest problems, especially, of course, in the Muslim world, uh, when we talk about imams, what do we mean? You know, in the West, let's say for you to be an Orthodox rabbi uh, or to be a priest in a you know recognized Christian sect, uh, you go through formal training. I mean, you do many years of formal training of leadership and, and, and ministering and, and all this stuff, right? Pastoral care. The Muslim Imams don't do that. They have no training programs uh, for them to go through. So, you know, we, we have this idea that the Imam is the one we're supposed to go to, but why, mm -hmm. right? Why, why, in fact? And there was a joke when I lived in the Middle East that, you know, if your kid is too dumb to go into medicine, right or engineering he goes into sharia oh right and so so and that's what we're dealing with we're dealing with mm -hmm. the dumbing down of islam in the muslim world i think we're gonna run out of time to ask you all the questions i've prepared because this is really interesting thank you so much but um real quick let's talk about reality check on muslims in north america uh with the rise of islamophobia right extremism, hate groups. I have two questions on that. And one of them is how Muslims can deal with those issues when it comes to that. And then I'll ask you the last question. And I think that's it for today. All right. Yeah. And these are easy questions. When I was in court, I had 15 lawyers waiting to ask me questions. So this is very nice. And <laughs> Uh, look, uh, I think, uh, you know, hatred is a growing problem. Hatred is a spiritual sickness, uh, regardless of whatever religion you come from. Uh, I've seen racist Christians, racist Jews, racist Muslims. Uh, I've seen that bigotry uh, in all these groups. It is a spiritual sickness. So what Muslims need to do is understand that uh, you're, you, you have to ally with the majority of the society. Uh, you cannot, uh, you know, you know, become single issue voters, right? Bringing it down to only one thing or whether it's, you know, only one geopolitical issue or one. We have to take a larger values based approach. Uh, you know, you can't just, uh, you know, ally with just any group because it's politically expedient for you. So I would just suggest to any group, really, especially if you're a religious group and, and you claim, uh, you know, inspiration from sacred texts, Abrahamic texts, uh, they need to. And, and I see more of them are doing it in 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 one way, uh, the pressure that has been put on Muslims from, you know, those who are against Muslims. It's making those Muslims learn that they need to diversify 
their portfolio. Uh, okay. So that, that's what I would Real suggest. Real quick, um, how about Americans or Canadians? What's the best way to, you know, to help when it comes to that, like help um, Muslims? Yeah. Look, uh, I mean, Muslim communities Very need support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry. Muslim communities need support from the larger faith groups, political groups. All are welcome. It should be equal and across the board. Okay. Last question. <laughs> Do you prefer tea or coffee? Coffee. <laughs> coffee. That was like, you're like, I know. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I like a little bit of coffee in my sugar, actually. Oh, that's how, because I drink, I drink coffee. I finally realized I'm like, I drink coffee because of sugar. I justify my sugar intake because of coffee. Of course, it smells good too. So, um, Mubin Sheikh, thank you so much for this great interview. Most welcome. Thank you. God bless all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done so, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And follow us at hashtag Zada Show to stay connected. I am Naska Zada, and until next episode, bye for now.